0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton's light rail transit project has cleared a defining hurdle. Council voted 11-3 to to sign the agreement to build the long-debated LRT. What are the next steps? Well, we'll get into that. The election continues to be a tight race. Did the debate last night change that? And concerns for long-term care crisis continue to grow as outbreaks among staff is steadily increasing. Long-term care advocate Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos joins us to discuss what she wants to hear from the leaders of the federal parties. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with... uh Transit and public transit and light rail transit. Uh, we mentioned uh, earlier, of course, that our, our listeners at CFPL London know that uh, their city council has already decided what their future looks like, and it's going to be bus rapid transit, and they're working on, on that program right now. Hamilton's debate about light rail transit, the LRT system. Uh, well, has been going on for quite some time, a number of years now, and there was a pivotal vote yesterday at City Council to do with a memorandum of understanding, and as uh, Hamilton, which by the way did pass by an eleven to three vote, and Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is uh, quite pleased with that result.
1: A cleaner, more sustainable future with significant expanded and improved public transportation that will be reliable, equitable, and will provide jobs and opportunity and development for many years to come.
0: Yeah, uh, it might be that way, but uh, as uh, John Best uh, reports in the Bay Observer today, uh, there's still a lot of eyes to dot and T's to grasp before this is finally completed. Uh, and maybe a few other issues that need to be dealt with too. Uh, John Best of course is the uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this morning. John, thanks for the time today.
1: Good morning, Bill. my pleasure.
0: I want to talk about the implications in a second. First of all, the vote, 11 to 3. There are a lot more than three people on council that have voiced their displeasure for this over the last number of months. Are you surprised that, that the vote was not as close as some people had anticipated?
1: Not really, Bill, because, um, uh, Councillor, um, Collins, uh, is campaigning for, uh, for the current election, and, uh, he indicated that, that he wasn't going to participate in debates, um, you know, during, uh, during the campaign. So that, that took one vote out. Uh, Brad Clark at the last meeting had indicated that he was no longer going to oppose it. So that left Tom Jackson, um, who basically his point was, it's, you know, he, he can, <laughs> you got to face reality. Plus he felt that, um, uh, the fact that there were six people opposed to it, it, it possibly resulted in the, uh, the MOU having some some clauses and some stuff in it that might not have been there otherwise. Uh, I'm not sure that's the case, but um, that's what his takeaway was. So uh, no, so I was I was not surprised at all, frankly.
0: Some are characterizing this as the last hurdle. I think actually the characterization that, that Mayor Eisenberger used on our program a week or so ago, John, was this is the last exit ramp uh, on this process. Uh, according to the, what you're writing in the Bay Observer today, that's not necessarily true.
1: Well, I don't. You know, I think I, all I was saying was, um, uh, as he said, there are no off ramps, and yet there's still 13 items that. Uh, the, it was made very clear yesterday when they were, when they were uh, questioning uh, Jason Thorne. He said, the only thing that you're approving today beyond the MOU, uh, you're, you're giving us permission to set up an LRT office, which is similar to what they had before. But uh, the rest of the 12 or 13 items that are still to be negotiated, he said, are, are coming back to council so the the point i made simply in the article was okay so that's fine uh, there's no off ramps but what happens if one or the, one or two of these items come back and council doesn't like them uh, so it was really just an open question as to uh, how done is a done deal i mean if you look at the definition i'm not sure dic- dictionary <laughs> definitions mean anything but an mou is far from a from a firm commitment but uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, the bottom line is council's voted for this thing now. The money's there. So I don't see, uh, you know, barring some major screw-up, I, I suspect it is going to go ahead.
0: There probably will be, although we we need to be clear when you talk about timelines, and I think that was discussed at the meeting yesterday as well, is uh, they're probably not even going to look at this thing until after the, uh, the municipal election into 2022, which probably means 2023, doesn't it?
1: Well, they they were asking Phil Verster, and and he was very cagey about... Uh, Phil you know, Verster, I should from Metrolink,
0: so... he was the CEO of
1: Metrolink, so he was at the meeting here and participated in the meeting, and he uh, he would not be pinned down on timelines either for the start of construction and certainly not to, for the end of construction, which, I you know, I think that's prudent. I mean, with construction projects, if you look at the Ottawa lrt or you look at any of these projects they hardly ever come in on time and seldom come in on budget which is perhaps a discussion for the uh, for another day because uh if this thing uh for some reason comes in at over the 3.4 billion the province is on the hook for any uh any extra uh, that has to be paid but um yeah i mean first of all i got those 13 items to negotiate it's now september of 2021 so you could see uh you know hopefully I, I don't know how long it takes to negotiate some of them will be simpler than others um but uh you know we're sometime into 2022 um, and then the, the first piece of of the work is going to be the uh, utility relocation um so you know, Verster I, 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 made reference to late 2022, so I, I would tend to, he's a construction guy, so I would listen to him.
0: Let's talk about the political aspect of this for just a second, if we could, John. Uh, as we all know, there's a, a federal election coming up in just a few days on September 20th. Uh, we already know that, uh, that you know that if if the Liberals are reelected, well, this is their their baby. This is the, the you know it was their money that got this thing going. Uh, we understand the federal NDP are supportive of this as well. Uh, The wording, though, that Aaron O'Toole mentioned in the Conservative platform is that the Conservatives would honor the commitment of that amount of money for public transit. They did not mention LRT at all. Uh, Is that an exit ramp that some people may embrace and try to grab onto if, in fact, he becomes the Prime Minister?
1: To be honest, I I heard that, and and I I don't know what to make of that. Uh, First of all, uh, the way the polls are shaking down now, uh, and it could change. We've got an English debate tonight, and then we got yeah. another ten or twelve days of uh, or ten days at least of campaigning. Um, I mean, even if he comes out with the most seats, uh, O'Toole, uh, although no poll has actually showed him, they've showed him very close, but I haven't seen a seat allocation yet that actually has him ahead. Um, but you know, it, it, it's so unlikely that either party now is going to form a majority. Uh, that, that the, the most likely outcome is, frankly, another liberal minority because they have uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP uh, as, a, as a partner, practically. Uh, it actually, it's kind of funny watching this campaign where Singh is really going after Trudeau for saying one thing and doing another, and yet he's been his, you might as well say, his lep bower for the, for the last uh, two years, <laughs> uh, keeping him in power. So. Uh, I mean, you know, the likely outcome, uh, unless there's a sea change here, is that we're going to get a liberal minority, and uh, that being the case, then whatever O'Toole has said on the subject is probably moot.
0: There's a a provincial election uh, next spring. Uh, All three political parties seem to be on side with that, so that's not going to change the dynamic, but there there also is going to be a a municipal election, uh, and uh, I don't know who's going to run. I don't, I'm assuming, I don't even know if there's going to be an anti LRT candidate uh, running for mayor. I mean, there has been in the last couple of elections. Uh, we're not even sure who's going to be there. I, I know that happened in Ottawa. I, I was talking to one of my uh, media buddies the other day about that. And he says, well, you know, they elected mayor Larry O'Brien as the mayor, and that killed the LRT project for one term anyway. And then it came back again. So I, I guess anything's possible at this stage. But there's the other element of this that needs to be discussed here. And you brought it up in your article in the Bay Observer, John, is when the announcement was made about this collaboration with the federal, provincial, and of course the municipal government, uh, and with, you know, this three-party thing going on, Minister McKenna uh, made it quite clear that the federal money was contingent upon uh, a massive influx of money for public housing and affordable housing. Uh, That didn't get discussed yesterday. It kind of got shoved off to the side and like, yeah, we'll talk about that down the road. Uh, I mean, to use the minister's own words, if that deal is not signed and that deal is not going forward and that's not part of of this memorandum of understanding, where's the federal commitment? I mean, that's what they said was going to be the linchpin, and now they seem to have backed away from that.
1: Well, I I think the more plausible answer to your question is that she was blowing a lot of hot air, um, frankly. Uh, It's not contingent. As soon as she uh, made that comment, and she made it very clearly, and she talked about triple bottom line, and yeah. when we spend money, we have to have assurances, blah, blah, blah. So I went after her ministry to find out what the mechanism would be for that. Uh, I, uh, they they kind of kicked it back to the province that said, well, really, the province and the city will decide, but we'll be very interested to see what they come up with. Well you saw the MOU yesterday it had three lines something about we will endeavor to try to figure uh so uh, nothing there it was kind of sad to see uh councilor nan she was still trying to get uh metro links and and uh, our our local officials to explain to her how LRT would figure into this and uh how affordable housing would figure into the LRT proposition, and the real answer is it ain't happening. Uh, if there's going to be affordable housing built, it's going to happen totally outside the LRT process. There's nothing going on uh, that that is. There's no contingency that that compels them to build. That was just hot air, unfortunately, uh, from a minister who is not around to be accountable uh, for what she said.
0: Well, and, if, it, uh, if it was, John, it's regrettable because uh, we don't need to remind our listeners that there's a housing crisis in this country right now. And, uh, and you know, the the concern here is that the way things are being s- uh, structured these days is an awful lot of the pressure to d- come up with that kind of is on the municipal government. And they just simply don't have the money or the wherewithal to do that. So any assistance uh, and, and, and drive from the federal government especially would be welcome here. And, uh, it, it, they, well, you know, they were talking the talk, but I don't see them walking the walk here.
1: Well, I mean, three point seven billion bill. Uh, we could have spent a billion of it on a first-class uh, BRT blast the whole system. We'd have two point seven left over for not, and, and affordable housing. The private sector can play a role in affordable housing, but what we really need in this city is public housing. We've got a five thousand unit backlog in public housing, and the only way public housing can be built in any great quantity is uh, with public money. And uh, so we've made some choices. Uh, councils made some choices. The lower city councilors have made choices that uh, they're going to they're going to vote for something that's only going to exacerbate the affordable housing issue. Uh, there's developers standing by. I was talking to somebody today that said he had been talking to two developers and said they just can't wait to to wipe out most of that. I'll call it crap, uh, referring to downtown uh, buildings. Uh, and get on with uh, the building boom. Uh, so, you know, this uh, this affordable housing, uh, housing insecurity, all of that, it, it's going to get worse, and those people who sort of shielded themselves with the words affordable housing in order to justify their vote, they really are going to have to answer for this.
0: Well, it's it's going to be a, a concern in a crisis, and and you're right. I mean, I understand that the private sector has to be a part of that as well. But usually, uh, what governments, uh, successful governments, have done. And by the way, we're I think the only G7 nation that doesn't have a national uh, housing strategy. But anyway, uh, you have to incentivize. You've got to bring them to the table and say, okay, here's here's what's in it for you guys, uh, instead of just you know your 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 largesse and you know your your commitment to community and all that sort of stuff. But but you're right. I I was under the impression, you know, because we talked to the minister, of course, that the day the announcement was made, uh, that, well, let's put this on the front burner, and that's going to be part of the discussion, too, but apparently not. And uh, I guess uh, we'll have to go cap in hand again to the federal and provincial governments uh, and start asking for assistance in this. But uh, that's only been going on for the last, what, 25 years, John?
1: Yeah, and, I mean, there is, uh, the, you know, there, there, there are some solutions, or at least some beginnings of solutions, and one of them is, the city owns land all along those routes. The uh, the province may or may not own some property along those routes, and uh, they have to be set aside for for public housing. Uh, you know, they, it can't all be thrown open to condo developers. Uh, if we're going to do anything about it, I mean, there is municipally owned property. Uh, one of the speakers yesterday. Uh, from the community benefits network he said they they need to pass some some really um, specific zoning along the route that will ensure that uh, some of this kind of housing can get built but let's not confuse what they call affordable housing with where the where the significant need is which is public housing affordable housing can be 1500 1600 a month that's not going to work for anybody that's on assistance uh, I mean, we need a, a real major uptick in uh, in public housing, and, and nobody's doing anything about it.
0: I got thirty seconds, but I've got to ask you this, and it's, it may sound like semantics, but I think it's very important. Uh, there's, as you mentioned in, in the piece in the Bay Observer, there's still going to be a lot of negotiation about a number of items. But is the debate over?
1: I don't. I don't. Well, the debate about whether to do it or not is probably over. But the debate about things like uh, what we're talking about today, uh, affordable housing, and and also the just the whole implementation, no, it's going to go on forever. It might be my grandchildren that are having these conversations <laughs> with yours, but uh, it's it. You know, there's there's plenty to talk about uh, right through to the end of this.
0: John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, always great to get your insight into this, John. Thanks so much.
2: My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: second French language debate was last night, and uh, the English language debate goes tonight. You'll hear that on global radio starting at 9 o'clock tonight. Uh, So what's the assessment? I mean, invariably, when you watch these things, you're trying to pick winners and losers. But as uh, Dr. Lori Turnbull from Dalhousie University told us, uh, she doesn't think anybody really performed well enough last night to change any
3: votes. That said, sometimes it takes a little while for this to percolate, and maybe it's going to be, um, you know, a couple of days before people start to think, okay, well, you know, I'm going to make up my mind on who I'm going to vote for, and maybe the debates will be part of that calculation.
0: Well, we'll find out tonight, I guess, after the English language debate. Uh, you know, the the one takeaway, I guess, of all the numbers that we've seen so far, uh, the polling that's been done, is this is very close, and well, the old phrase, I guess, too close to call. But there's a story behind the numbers. And to talk about that, so pleased to welcome back to the program, John Wright. John is the executive vice president of Marrow Public Opinion. John, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time today.
2: Well, thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, just before we get into some of the numbers and, and some of the stuff that you guys mm-hmm. have found out with uh, with your polling on this, John, what was your impression last night? Was was, was any? The, we, I guess no knockout punches certainly were delivered, but did anybody score any points at all?
2: Well, I'll give you two answers. Number one, for those few of us that actually watched it, I think Mr. Trudeau did well, um, but we also you know see him pretty amped up and aggressive nowadays it's like he's got finally the bit in his teeth the majority of people though in this country uh, didn't tune in um, most of the people who are in play for their votes in the 905 the lower mainland in atlantic canada w- w- didn't pay any attention to it and for all of the research i've done doing focus groups you know with those little dials where people watch debates and doing polling before and afterwards what i find is that If anybody is listening or reading a newspaper uh, today or or online, they're listening what you and I have to say. So the fact that I say, well, Mr. Trudeau, you know, kind of did well versus the others, they're going to take that away from it. But, you know, we're the elites. We're watching it. Virtually nobody else is.
0: What about the English language? Is that going to change tonight? Are are those people that you just referenced, are they going to at least some of them tune in and say, well, I got to make up my mind. What are these guys doing?
2: I, I don't think there are a lot of people, especially the undecided. I mean, they're not they're not into de- sitting for, you know, an hour and a half or whatever it is to listen to a, a debate and people yelling over each other. I mean, they're not making their decisions based on that. 80% of people from research, 80% of people who haven't made up their mind, who, who are about to watch this debate, if at all, have already made up their mind. 80% of voters. You're, you're looking at the last group. So here's what is going to happen. The campaigns are going to watch this. The campaigns for the Liberals that have you know, started out really listless are now energized. They've got a, a a leader who didn't have an issue when he called this election campaign, but has managed to cobble together a few pieces. I mean, he's got uh, people he's indignant about who throw things at him, and he says that's not Canadian. He's against uh, people who have assault rifles, and that's a point of difference. Um, there's a couple of other pieces that he's, he's managed to get into and now feel strong about, so it's energizing that campaign. The numbers overall in the country, the last polls were done between the sixth and the ninth, I think, or the eighth, uh, show still a very tight race, a little bit of movement on the NDP where Mr. Trudeau, and that's that's the point. Mr. Trudeau's trying to bring back those from the NDP over to the Liberals, and that's starting to happen a bit. So we have a very tight race on the top in the regions. Ontario is almost tied. it's going to be, I think it's going to be very close to where we were on 2019, as opposed to where we could have been in 2021.
0: And as you've been telling us for years, John, it's, it's not just the total vote, it's how many seats you win. And that can change dramatically. Andrew Shear won the popular vote in 2019. And where did that get him? You know, it's, 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 it's really a a very, very tight race. And it's very difficult, I guess, to predict that seat total, isn't it?
2: No, even more so now. Well, a quick lesson for, for listeners, <clears throat> there are effective seat models where you can take a public opinion poll that's of, of fairly large size and pour it into it. It's bolted down into each writing and postal code in the country, and it actually works. I mean, I've seen it work many, many times. What the public gets to see, however, are what are called aggregations, and they take all of the polls. So different methodologies, uh, top-line numbers, maybe different bottom-line numbers, and they group them all and they put them into this formula, and it kind of averages everything. So it is producing uh, a a... a Verifiable and fairly directional seat total right now, which does show the liberals, even though the Tories are slightly ahead, showing the liberals ahead by maybe nine or ten seats. The wild card in all of this for pollsters and aggregators and all these people is we got a COVID circumstance. And I don't know how many people. I haven't been to my voting booth yet, but I don't know how many people are going to stand in line six feet apart for an hour and a half to get in to vote. I don't know how many older people who normally go out and vote are going to stay home because they may fear that they're going to get COVID. I don't know how many students are actually going to vote off campus because they don't have, uh, you know, a voting booth on campus this year. There's a wild card here where we talk about turnout, but I start talking about turn up and I'm not, I don't know what that's going to do. So all these models, it's going to be an energized group of people and a very hearty group of people who get to vote out this time. And so I think that's the wild card we have to really pay attention to. Even, even those people who are, you know, 400,000 who are getting ballots in the mail, they don't list the candidates in the riding. If anybody's got one, it's just kind of a, you got to take your crayon and draw within the lines. And if you get the name wrong, you could be disqualified right there. So there's a lot of things going on here that we've never seen before in our lifetimes. I don't know how it's gonna play out, so we'll have to wait and see.
0: There's a story in the numbers here, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, that, that, that you folks at, at, at Morrow have, have talked about, and, and it's something that doesn't get talked about, John, as we look at the polls, and I, you're, you're right, I mean, I look at them, all of them, all, each and every day, and you know, within a couple of percentage points of each other, and you say, okay, the, the you know, okay, tool's up a little bit, and that's usually at the expense of the liberals, or the end, and you say, well, where did that vote go if they've lost support? The party that we're not talking about that you guys have are, are focused on here is the People's Party, Maxime Bernier. He's not allowed in the debates, and a lot of people just say, well, the, you know, there's nothing to that party. But they have picked up support in the last little while, and i I, I got to think, John, that could be a factor in the election.
2: It could be, and I started looking at this about a week and a half ago, and I've done some polling on it, and probably was the first out of the gate talking about this, because it is a phenomenon, and we're watching something develop that is quite unseen in our time. So if we remember Mr. Bernier got maybe one percent if he was lucky in the last election, but he turned he tended to be a very right wing, anti-immigrant type stance. But by about July of this year, while he was still getting nothing, the numbers started to move in early August. And by about August the 10th to the 17th, I started noticing it going up very significantly. So what was at 1% started to blip up to 4%. It's now sitting on an average of maybe 6%. Some polls are capturing it between 9 7 and 9%. But that's a huge upswing. And so you trace it back to the events. What happened on or about August the 10th? Passports. Uh-huh. passports were introduced in the province of Quebec they followed in in Ontario there was a lot of talk about it across the country and what we're getting here is an interesting collection of people. So there are people. I'm, I'm double vaxxed I'll take the vaccine booster, whatever. You know, I understand the implications of non-vax people getting into hospitals and clogging up and all that sort of stuff. But there are many people in this country, and they're not all right-wing people. They're they're doctors and lawyers, like even doctors, lawyers, uh, educators, you know, uh, well-respected people, and people across the board who said, "I'm not going to put this in my arm because it might change my DNA," or for whatever reason. I don't want to do it and I'm not going to have it. And when you put passports in, I hate the word passport. What a passport means is it it allows you to gain entry into something. It also makes those people who live in a country feel like they're not part of a country anymore. I mean, if it was an ID card, that's one thing, but now it's a passport. So governments have now put onto that a whole series of conditions. You can't go to restaurants or bars or, or, you you know, they're going to get fired at work. And so the, the biggest problem we've got into right now is is that these people have had no place to go. They're very upset. They're very angry. And they're now joining a party which is a vessel for them. And Maxine Bernier is talking about liberty against the tyranny of government. And that's taking the anti-gun owners and uh, – sorry, the the anti-regulatory people on guns, the people who don't like politicians and all these people and bringing them together. And he's actually putting a, a, a rhetoric around them that that's actually motivating them. And they're very angry. So when we see those people throwing gravel at the prime minister and they say, Oh, they're just, you know, right-wing conservatives, look in the background. They're all wearing, they're all with PPC signs. And if you go on social media, you know what you find? You find families, you find families with kids at picnic tables, having hot dogs and you you hear them, you you see them having rallies and listening to each other and wearing t-shirts and all that. And they're, we, we are watching something form where it might just be called the Liberty Party, if anything else. They're an oppressed group of people. All I say is this to anybody who's listening. So we have four and a half million people, four and a half million people in this country who refuse to get vaccinated. And don't argue with me about the implications of that. But you push four and a half million people into a corner, they're going to push back. You threaten them with job loss, they're going to press back. And it's, it's something we're going to have to reconcile in our society, but we're starting to see the first evidence of what it's producing.
0: And there's an interesting point there, and I, I want to underscore that because I, you, and I, you've made it already, but it's for the sake of our listeners. Whether they're right or wrong is immaterial. It's that it's what they believe. And they're going to go to the polls and mark their acts based on those beliefs. Well, and, and so you can't, you can't dismiss that, John.
2: Well, I'm looking at right now, as we're talking on the television, uh, the PPC at 5.3%. I, I'm not sure they'll even show up. And I don't think that we, we should judge their success at the polls as anything that's bad with polling or anything else. I mean, they're not an organized party. Some of them are getting t-shirts now. They don't have candidates. They're not they're not there yet. And I don't think Bernier cares a whit about it. What we're seeing is a movement, people coming together. And the greater issue for us is we say it's un Canadian. Un Canadian to um, throw things and be violent and get angry with this sort of stuff. Well, it's un-Canadian to actually not come up with some kind of an accommodated solution. And I don't know what that is. That's the most frustrating thing out of everything. And I'm looking at the data here. I've done polling over the last two nights that show these people and what they're about. And they're right across the board. They're demographically just like you and me. But they've got some concerns. And what's un-Canadian is that we don't have a solution to this or even a forum to discuss it. And I don't know what it's going to take because COVID's going to be here for a long time. And if you're going to throw people out of work or you're going to segregate them, you're going to back them into a corner, they're going to fight back and there's going to be a militancy to it. So it starts with throwing rocks through windows. I don't know where it ends, but unless we as employers and politicians and others come together to figure out how to take some of the steam out of the pipe, we're going to have a lot of problems beyond just a, a new party forming. So I think it's a wake up call these people are very committed to not doing what society wants them to do. And they're a big number. That's the core population of Toronto and Montreal put together. That's what you're dealing with. That's a lot of people. And when 50,000 people march in the streets in Montreal, as they did a week and a half ago and no media coverage because the media don't want to report on, 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 or encourage that, then they say that's just fake news. That's fake because it's not covering my views. We don't identify them. We don't. In fact, Bill, there was a protest at at one of the hospitals in Hamilton the other day, right? Two Mm -hmm. days ago. Yep. Yep. They rung around the hospital. Why are they there? They're fighting against the medical community that are are backing the governments to do what they're doing. It's not against the workers. But I read the, the, the article that was in the spec and not one person was interviewed. From that group. Not a single person. Everybody else was interviewed. Politicians and medical people, not a single person. So their voice is being pushed down. It's not being listened to. And as a result of that, they're getting angrier and angrier. So I, as you can tell, I've done a lot of research in the last week on this. It's a phenomenon. It is we are watching a movement, not a political party, before our eyes. And I think it's a wake-up call that we've got to deal with this. I just don't know how, but we've got to come to a solution. In the in the States, it may end up where they end up with two separate sets of schools, one for vaccinated, one for not, because the confrontation at the door is going on and on and on. So I don't know. Being un-Canadian is not finding a middle ground to discuss these things or to find a solution. And I think I think we got to work on that uh, an awful lot based on what I'm seeing in the data
0: i know previous to, to the stuff that you uncovered here john a lot of people might have just uh, you know assumed that like at the support for, for bernie's party is really there's probably the extreme right we get the conservative party you know you know those folks you know uh they're the ones that will gravitate to that and, and they may in fact do that but as as your data uh seems to indicate uh they're pulling from all parties i mean people from yes. all political stripes are starting to say enough is enough
2: yeah absolutely and i think what's really really important is that mr bernier is wily as a fox we're not hearing about the anti-immigrant stance anymore I, I invite people just explore go on social media look at the people that he's getting there uh and and listen to what he's saying and what he i mean he invoked the other night uh during a, a campaign his own stop in manitoba where he's violating you know rules right mm-hmm. then and there but he, he invoked john f kennedy like he, he actually said you know John Kennedy said and I'm just paraphrasing you know it comes to the the burden of once a generation to you know um fight for democracy and stuff like that he talks about you know we are here to fight tyranny and this is a revolution he uses these terms and it's it's connecting people who are pushing back against government who are pushing onto him so it's it's not the anti-immigrant party yes there yes there's those people there and it's There are conservatives there, but there are other people and they're from other places. And and this is where society, using a passport, has said, you can't live in your own land. We disagree with you and you have to go over here. We're going to force you to lose your job. We're going to force you not to do things if you don't comply with us. And what that's creating is a liberty party without a manifesto. So we'll see a manifesto at some point. Then we'll see organization on the ground. We'll see pushback all over the place and we'll see a lot of anger. And that's the formation of something that we didn't have in July. It didn't exist in July. It does now. And you can look back in the history of the events that have happened over the last month, and you can see where it starts, and it correlates directly with the numbers. So we've got something going on below the surface, man, and I think we better address it or it's going to be, it's, it's, it's going to be even more uh, virulent and militant as we go on.
0: Are they going to be motivated enough to vote? I mean, we saw the black vote become motivated in the, in the last federal election well, in the states. but but And they had a cause for that. And, and I'm not suggesting the numbers are anywhere near what, what happened there. But, you know, and I'm not suggesting they're actually going to change who's going to form the government, but they're going to be a factor in this if all of these people that you've just talked about uh decide, you know what, I don't care about COVID, I don't care about this, I'm going
2: to vote. Uh, well, it, it may also be that a lot of those people believe that their vote doesn't matter. Like, what's the point? Also, and as I said, you don't want to stand in line uh, with a bunch of vaccinated people when you're unvaccinated to go through this process. As I, as I said at the outset, uh, first of all, don't judge their, their, their forming based on what you see on the election. It, forget about that. Number two, we're just seeing over the last month, just the last month, the creation of something that could attract millions of people. And Bernier has refused to do, except for a couple, of interviews, just a couple. And he's smart because he's allowing the people to come together. They're shaping something. And again, if you look at the social media, go to Oshawa or Ajax where they've got together or to London, Ontario, look at those people. They're having hot dogs. They're at picnic tables. They're, they've got kids out with blue T-shirts on. I mean, they look just like you and me and our next door neighbors. But they have something finally in common and they are they're not yelling at, at the clouds anymore. They're trying to find a place where they can push back against a society that doesn't accept what they, they are doing. And I, I understand all the medical parts of it, but they have a view that if you stick a needle in their arm, you might change your DNA and that of your kids. They fundamentally believe that. Or they believe that government is is overreacting. You know, what comes next? Do police hold people down and needles in their arms do they cart them away and put them in camps what do you do if you're going to fire them all from their jobs and 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 say screw you because you don't agree with us that's the, th- the that's what i'm seeing in the data that's the theme that's pulling these people together so i, I don't know i i think that maxine bernier's got something and i think it, if we're back at the polls in 18 months because we have a minority um a minority election um at this time around you're going to feel it next time about, and and don't worry about it now. Next time will be the time we feel it.
0: Well, yeah, and that's another topic for discussion as to whether or not, you know, this is uh, just the precursor for an election again in another 18 months. Uh, it's something to think about for certain and something to track, and I know that you guys at My Republic Opinion are doing that. John, as always, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate it.
2: Hey, Bill, take care. Thanks so much to you and to Alicia for arranging this.
0: You really appreciate it. John Wright, Executive VP of uh, More Public Opinion.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We're heading into the English language debate, of course, in the uh, the federal election. That'll be happening 9 o'clock tonight. And you'll hear it right here on Global uh, Radio. Uh, not a whole lot of discussion in the debate so far about long-term care, and, and that's frankly, depressing, because we know it was a major issue. Uh, before the election, all of them talked about it pretty extensively, and uh, we're looking for some plans, and we're looking for a way out. And as our, our friend and we often uh, guest on this program, Dr. Amid Reyes, says long-term care, it has to be an election issue.
2: I think everyone is now aware of long term care. I actually talk to people, my neighbors, friends, who are very worried about ending up in long term care homes or, you know, as their parents are aging, they're very worried that they will, you know, their parents will end up in one of these homes and not receive proper care. So uh, this has to be an issue uh, at the ballot box. This has to be an elections issue. And we really have to hold all of our political parties accountable to make sure that the changes are done so that our seniors finally get the life that they deserve.
0: Uh, Because we're all going to be seniors at some point, and and maybe in these facilities. I'm also saddened by the fact that it doesn't seem to be a front-burner issue for for the main political parties here. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. Uh, Dr. Stapolopoulos, of course, is co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards and a professor at Ontario Tech University. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: Oh, it's always a pleasure let me ask
0: let me ask you when we talked about this and we're going back about 15 16 months i guess when the crisis oh. was going on here uh and we were concerned about the deaths we were concerned about the living conditions uh but then along came the vaccines and we, most Ooh. of the the, the the in you know the people got vaccinated uh you know the ontario government said you know we're going to get the ventilation systems in there uh, i yep. get the sense of it mean, the of them just kind of smacked their hands and said yep yeah, mission accomplished let's move on this this issue and this yeah. crisis is not over is it
3: No, you know what, it's disgusting. I'm going to preface this by saying that, you know, Canada had the the greatest share of long-term care deaths of all the OECD countries, right, well above the U.S. It's our national shame. Between just the first two waves, we lost over 14,000 residents in long-term care and over 30 staff. So not for nothing, you know, and that's two-thirds of all Canada's COVID-19 deaths. So not for nothing. This is the biggest crisis that occurred during COVID. And the fact that we're not hearing more about it right now by all the federal parties, Mine is Jagmeet Singh. It is frankly despicable to me, and I think it is a, a glaring, you know, display of the ageism that is imbued in, in frankly, all of these party platforms.
0: Well, let's talk about those. I mean, you know, yeah. you've had an opportunity to look these over, and, and yeah. you're right. I mean, to your point, uh, you know, Mr. Singh's been on this program, and he did talk extensively about long-term care, but I'm not hearing a whole lot of discussion during the debates, and I'm not so sure that the majority of the population watch those, but they certainly hear the sound clips the next day, uh, and they, t- they listen to the coverage on programs like this about this. Uh, I don't want this issue to slide off the table, and, and no. it, it, in the, in the absence of debate about this, I'm afraid that may happen
3: yeah and the most upsetting part is that you know i had the opportunity to address the prime minister directly and i and i explicitly said to him listen my fear right now is and this was back in february that with the you know oncoming vaccinations that will increase will decrease the deaths that this is going to fall off the radar which is exactly what has happened and people will assume that just because we don't have the deaths that we had before that all the problems are fixed when that could not be further from the truth And, and when it comes to the liberals i mean I'm not happy, and I've been very clear about this, with the approach that our Prime Minister is taking, particularly given the fact that we have met with their people and we have very clearly pointed out the issues with ownership. The devastating impact that for-profit has, the undeniable impact for-profit had during this pandemic, but well before it. And the fact that they refuse to address ownership and they have consistently shot down opportunities to indeed phase out for-profit is very troubling to me. And what they are doing instead is focusing on national standards in the form of accreditation, which is useless because most homes in Canada are accredited. And what has that done for us? Nothing, because it ends up being another private process where you can effectively buy your way into. And it's useless so far. So the fact that they're not addressing the ownership issue is very troubling to me. and, And especially given the fact that in their own budget, when they went out of their way to prioritize, national public child care right to prioritize so they're addressing the issue of ownership when it comes to child care so they're choosing to acknowledge the data there on on for-profit provision of any some sort of care because we know it's bad across the board they're doing it for the children but they're not returning the favor for the grandparents so that's troubling to me um do you want me to go through the other part here? oh yeah oh yeah
0: You're... go for so, it
3: yeah, so the block, uh, as we know, is pretty much useless in this area. They're refusing to entertain any efforts at national standards, saying, you know, they, they shoot back at Trudeau, saying it's not your business, you know, stay out of federal jurisdiction, blah, blah, blah. So there's nothing really there to even talk about. O'Toole and the PCs is hilarious. So when they were recently asked they literally said that they were going to apparently introduce a new law And here's the best part failing to provide the basic necessities of life by the way Aaron o'toole i don't know if you've done your homework but we already have a criminal code law on this and it is currently being ignored to go after these bad actors so i don't know why you're asking us to create a second law that is already there but anyway and then he talks about and this is hilarious as well investing three billion to renovate long-term care, which is essentially copying the same number that the Liberals initially put out in their first budget, which they have since up to $9 billion, and that they'll increase the number of PSWs in Canada, you know, their spokesperson, which is hilarious. Um, but the most troubling part that they have said is that they will call for more partnerships with private nonprofit operators. I mean, are you kidding me? I, the, I, it's the most troubling approach, obviously, is by the CPC. So uh, if I were anyone in long-term care, and anyone that had any vested interest in this, I would stay far away from from that platform, because you know you're just going to get much of the same that we have now, if not worse, given their predilection towards for-profit ownership and delivery. Um, Then we have the NDP, which obviously that's where my Where my uh, strong suit is, I have met with Jagmeet Singh several times. He's a lovely man. He has been on this issue from the very beginning. And I see the most, let's say, initiative of anyone from him, second to May Paul. Because what they are doing is actually looking at the evidence, right? And the evidence is very clear on this. They want to phase out for-profit long-term care. They're not saying do it tomorrow. That is such a pivotal approach that we have to take because that is the root cause of this larger evil in this in this sector you know there's consistent understaffing and and consistent underinvestment sure we can deal with those but the profit motive will always chip away at the system and lead to a race to the bottom that's exactly what we've seen over the last two decades so in things like making rivera public making sure that workers had paid sick days 10 paid sick days which would have saved countless lives in long-term care because we know for a Fact in Ontario that many of these workers were going to work symptomatic. Our public health officer, they talked to David Williams, thank God he's gone. He knew all about this and admitted to it in the long term care commission testimony, which was horrifying, um, and did nothing about it because we were all saying, paid sick leave, paid sick leave, you have to get these opportunity these workers a chance to stay home so they don't bring the virus into the home. And they did and they knew it, negligence to the next level. Um and then the Green Party is kind of very similar to the uh, NDP, where they kind of they admit the same things. They say that we need national standards, which we all need in the interim. We all agree on this. Well, minus O'Toole. Oh, I forgot to mention this. We, my party, my group, Canadian Long Term Care Standards, actually did meet with O'Toole's people, and they likened national standards to red tape. So that's how they see any some sort of transparency and oversight in these facilities as just extra bureaucratic red tape that they don't want to deal with. So everyone should know that. And then the Green Party also talks about, you know, having to phase out uh, for profit and also creating national standards and creating, you know, amending the Canada Health Act to more fruitfully incorporate long term care homes. And then that is something that we obviously need to do. And all of us in the field, uh, you know, that are experts and that have been really pushing this issue have been clear that we need to amend the legislation to really bring long term care under the kinds of you know investment that we treat hospitals in acute care that was you know factored in most fruitfully to the initial canada health act
0: all right let's talk a little bit about the the, the politics of this uh, the green party aren't going to form the next government of course uh, the ndp are not likely to form the next government uh we're probably going to have a minority government i mean that's what the numbers seem to indicate right now uh who can the NDP and Jagmeet Singh work with? I mean, you know, is Aaron O'Toole going to say, yeah, I kind of like your platform anyway, we can support something like that? Is Justin Trudeau going to say, well, yeah, we can borrow from that? I mean, they they have uh, some whatever working relationship. I, I guess what I'm looking for, Vivian, is yeah. is where are we going to find some progress here? I mean, as you say, some uh, no. of these party platforms are so diametrically opposed, yeah. uh, and, and some of them are you know, just, you know, fantasy i i don't know where the hell they're coming from or what they've been listening to for the last 18 months uh but we want to get something done here like where is the best chance to get some progress here
3: Oh, I could tell you with, with all certainty in my heart that if we have O'Toole uh in we're we're in big trouble. We are gonna see big problems ahead. Even if they're the, the main opposition we're gonna we're gonna have a lot of trouble. Um the NDP is our best hope in in my opinion in really pushing the Liberals to do the right thing and they've been able to do that over the course of the pandemic and other areas. So they clearly have a better working relationship than say the PCs and the Liberals. So I really hope that people Look at that and pay attention to what has been done so far and what, you know, JEGMEET has been able to do to convince, let's say, you know, Trudeau to do certain things and to increase certain supports over the pandemic. So clearly they work together better than. O'Toole and uh, Trudeau would work together. So
0: Th- there's, there's another element to this there. too. And you t- you talked about, I mean, you know, Mr. O'Toole's idea about passing a, a new law, which really would be a redundancy to, to what's it's already there. True. And it's enforcement. It's yeah. you know there are standards already. Uh, yeah. you, we can argue as to whether or not they're efficient standards, but they're there. But if nobody's enforcing them, and this isn't just an Ontario problem, this is a national problem. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter what your rules are, as long if you're not going to follow them and you're not going to follow up with, you know, with with you know. Somebody who's going to have a look at these places from time to time, instead of yeah. saying, "Hey, by the way, I'm going to be there on Thursday," and give you four days to clean up your act, uh, nothing's ever going to get done here.
3: No question. We've had this conversation with the Prime Minister's Office directly. We have told them that you know, if we're looking at four key areas that we have said to them, you know, first, you, the first thing you must deal with, obviously, the, the quickest thing you can deal with, which is most important, is staffing and the labor conditions. So there's a variety of things there we can do very quickly. Legislating this to get this, you know, sector under better, you know, control that way because that's, you know, the conditions of work become the conditions of care. And Pat Armstrong puts it best there. But then transparency, we need more information. We need to publicly release data that isn't released for the most part. And then the enforcement and penalties. We have been very clear with Prime Minister Trudeau that we need stricter financial penalties that really go after these bad actors. We need criminal charges as well. We know in the States, for example, they go after these people. I mean, extended care was effectively frightened out of the U.S., because you know the the state the state's office went after them with a 38 million dollar lawsuit and then forced them to enter into a corporate ethics agreement which would make them increase their staffing levels and provide an appropriate staffing mix mainly getting the nurses up there because that's something that's happened here too we have replaced nurses with psws which are non-regulated and, and uh, not as skilled profession, unfortunately, because they do this on purpose because they can exploit them and make more money off them by paying them less, et cetera, ad finitum, ad nauseum. So th- these kinds of things, the U.S. actually goes after these guys, and they also are much more litigious, right? So the losses there uh, are much, you know, in Canada, we don't really have a good legal framework. Um, in the civil courts to go after this and and my fellow co-founders Melissa uh, Miller who's a lawyer in long-term care talks about this too and has indeed talked about this with the federal government too so there are obviously things that we can do in the interim which affect all of these things penalties transparency staffing and labor conditions and then the you know in my opinion something that we can't really negotiate on is the overtime and we're not saying tomorrow but the overtime phasing out a for-profit long-term care, because the evidence is undeniable, and really working to bring the system into public, not-for-profit delivery. I mean, that's what we have to do. If we do these four things, we are going to be in wonderful shape going forward. Well, so and there's got to... Notes.
0: And, the, and and that goes back to national standards. Uh, yeah. you, know, the, the, you know, the overtime issue is, is a staffing issue. It's a payment issue, right. and there's got to be something to this. And the argument we've had, and I'm sure you heard this too, Vivian, when you've had uh, meetings with these representatives, yeah. is, well, you know, uh, we have to decide about jurisdiction here. It's, is it federal? Right. Is it provincial? Uh, the, the way I want to see my federal government work, and I don't care who's yep. in the prime minister's office right now, is you tell the provinces if you want the money, here are the parameters. And if you don't follow the parameters, you don't get the money. That's all there is to it. Uh, you can do it. You're all way if you want but you're not going to get federal dollars unless you play by these rules and and yeah it, it's going to take a backbone to do that but that's what's going to be yeah. needed here
3: no question about it listen i got a little feisty and i'll admit this to you all i mean my co-founders of canadian's Long Term care standards were in on this call but when we were talking to the feds one day and they, they started to you know broach the topic and really oh jurisdiction i said respectfully but i don't want to hear the word jurisdiction again it's bullshit this is the only time i'll swear because let's be real look at what happened this was massive carnage uh, we've never seen a casualty event like this in our Canadian long-term care history I do not want to hear jurisdiction I want you to get off your high knees and I want you to do something to protect the people that raised you and took care of you that's what I want I want to see some political courage for people to use their power in the way that will do the right thing that's what I want to see
0: Well, uh, we wanted to bring this issue back into everybody's attention, and I hope we did that over the last 18 minutes or so. Uh, Vivian, always a pleasure. Uh, Keep doing what you're doing, and we'll uh, try to do what we can at this end, and we'll stay in touch. Appreciate the time today.
3: Thank you, friend.
0: Take care. Dr. Vivian the co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards, uh, holding the government's whatever government, federal or provincial, holding their feet to the fire to make sure that something gets done. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.